0: Cultural and Religious Sensitivity in Decision-Making for Newborns by Dr. Zainip Sali. I am Dr. Zainip Sali. Today, uh, I'm going to be talking about cultural and religious sensitivity and decision-making for newborns. In a pluralistic society like ours, navigating through the diverse cultural and religious beliefs of parents while taking care of sick newborns can be challenging. One of the most Ethically challenging situations for a neonatologist may occur when parents refuse medically recommended treatment for their newborn based on their religious beliefs. This dilemma raises several potentially controversial questions. Who should decide and how? What are the ethical principles and standards for medical decision-making for newborns? What does the law say when physicians' and parents' preferences conflict? Can a physician override parents' decision? What support systems are or should be in place for the parents and the healthcare team, including the the physician? In this module, I will first discuss the ethical and legal framework for decision-making for newborns in general. Then I will use this paradigm to discuss the issue at hand, how to approach decision-making when parents' religious or cultural beliefs are different than what is recommended by the healthcare team. We will use cases where parents who are Jehovah's Witnesses, but will provide other cases where religious and cultural differences surrounding care and decision-making in the NICU arise. Our first case is Jacob. Jacob is a term infant born to a 23-year-old healthy woman who had good prenatal care. Pregnancy was uncomplicated. However, Jacob was delivered by emergency C-section due to placental abruption. He is in shock with a hematocrit of 16%. You as the attending physician immediately meet with the parents. You explain Jacob's condition and give your recommendation that in order for Jacob to survive, he needs a transfusion with emergency red blood cells. Jacob's parents say they are Jehovah's Witnesses and do not give permission for transfusion. Our second case is Jane. Jane is a one-day-old term infant with prenatally undiagnosed large right-sided congenital diaphragmatic hernia. She also experienced mother to severe hypoxic ischemic asphyxia due to cord prolapse, and now she is severely hypoxic despite maximal respiratory and cardiovascular support. You as the neonatologist on service recommend ECMO as a last resort. Parents say they are Jehovah's Witnesses and do not agree with ECMO due to the requisite use of blood and blood products they burst into tears and say they want to hold their baby. Our third case is Mustafa. Mustafa is born at 23 weeks gestation and now two days old in stable condition. Parents are devout Muslim and they ask that holy water they brought from Medina, a religious site in Saudi Arabia, to be put on their baby's forehead. They believe this will keep him from harm and enable him to survive. You're concerned about the water, especially the infection risks that it may carry. Our fourth case is Ricardo. Ricardo is an infant born with a severe complex congenital heart disease. Cardiovascular surgeons cannot offer any surgical intervention to save his life, and the infant is actively dying. Parents are from South America, and the mother only speaks Spanish. She sits at the bedside quietly and refuses to hold the baby. The nurses are distressed and are critical of the mother's attitude, thinking that she's uncaring. What would you do to better understand the situation and help this mother and also the bedside nurse's distress? The questions surrounding these cases are, what is the ethical dilemma? Who's going to make medical decisions for this child? What principle standards should guide your decision? What factors would influence your decision to override or honor the parent's decision? What are the tools and support systems you have as a neonatologist to help you in this process? The ethical dilemma in these cases lies in the realm of decision-making for a life-sustaining treatment for a critically ill newborn and differences in opinions for caring for the newborn when the medical team's recommendation is in conflict with or different from the parents based on religious or cultural beliefs. Medical decision-making for a newborn follows this target decision-making model in which the patient has never reached a competent state and is not capable of expressing his desires or wishes. Morally, legally, and socially, parents have been accepted to have the right to make medical decisions for their minor children, in our case, the newborn. In these situations, the ethical and legal standard used for decision-making is the best interest standard. It is assumed that parents would know what the best medical decision is for their sick infant. Inevitably, significant quality of life assessments may be involved in the decision-making process. The best interest standard dictates that best interest judgments must focus entirely on the value of the life of the infant who is going to live it, and not on the value the infant's life has for his parents. So, uh, how do religious and spiritual beliefs affect health and medical decision-making in general? Religion and spirituality have health implications and may strengthen the therapeutic relationship and provide support for patients and families. The American Academy of Pediatrics also recognizes that religion plays a major role in the lives of many children and their parents. Therefore, it is no surprise that cultural background and religion may also affect medical decision-making for families. For example, in one study, parents of black infants agreed less frequently than parents of white infants to limit life-saving medical treatments. A different study reported that Muslim parents rarely gave informed permission to withdraw life-sustaining treatment. So why do the Jehovah's Witnesses reject blood transfusions? Jehovah's Witnesses are Christians who believe the Bible is the Word of God in its entirety. That is the literal interpretation. They reject the use of blood on the basis of their interpretation of the Bible. Here's a relevant verse from the book of Leviticus chapter 15 and verses 28 and 29. For the Holy Spirit and we ourselves have favored adding no further burden to you except these necessary things to keep abstaining from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. Based on this prohibition, many blood products are rejected, including individual cellular components, such as platelets, although minor fractions like immunoglobulin may be permitted. Members of the Jehovah's Witnesses community believe that receiving a blood product will result in loss of eternal life. If they die due to not receiving blood, they interpret it as living in accordance with faith, not dying as a result of faith. Therefore, dying as a result of not receiving a blood transfusion is a rational act based on their beliefs. Jehovah's Witnesses patients, however, do not oppose other forms of medical treatment. They would accept alternative therapies like erythropoietin and volume expanders. So what are the key ethical concepts or frameworks that guide the neonatologist in decision-making for the newborn? From the medical perspective, the surrogate decision-making framework is anchored in the principle of beneficence, doing good. Accordingly, physicians have duties to contribute to the welfare of their patients using the best interest standard as their guide, particularly since the newborn cannot express his desires. So who will decide what is best for the infant? It is exactly at this point where the ethical dilemma emerges when parents who are Jehovah's Witnesses refuse a blood transfusion for their child. By refusing blood transfusions, Parents of this faith perceive themselves as acting in their child's best interest, meaning he will not be cut off from the possibility of obtaining eternal life. One set of parents explained their rejection of blood transfusion for their infant by saying, We would mourn the death of our child, but openly accept the brevity of this life for the glory that comes with being in the presence of God. These parents certainly want their child to live, but for them, it is more important to save his eternal life than the brief, temporary life on earth. So what is the medical perspective? Although harm, benefit, and welfare are difficult to discuss in relation to religion, medicine evaluates the potential for physical harm in making decisions, in which that is viewed as the ultimate physical harm. The AAP strongly supports this approach and advises pediatricians to protect children from any circumstances, including religious beliefs that may directly threaten the welfare of the child. A practical and arguably one of the best approaches in determining what is best for these cases is based upon the view called the child's right to an open future. Basically, it dictates that Physicians have a duty to preserve the child's life so that he could live, and when he reaches the age of majority, he can enjoy exercising autonomy for himself. This also covers the uncertainty about child's best interest. Since the newborn cannot speak for himself, what the parents believe is in the child's best interest may be mistaken. Although this may be seen as a paternalistic action on the physician's side, it is justified based on the very high risk of harm, in this case death, if transfusion or other life-saving treatment is not provided. What legal framework can be applied to these cases? Historically, the legal limits of Jehovah's Witnesses' parents' authority on their children's activity were first addressed in the 1944 US Supreme Court case Prince versus Commonwealth of Massachusetts. The court's conclusion established that society had interest in protecting the welfare of children. It also supported the state's authority to assert that parents may be free to become martyrs themselves, but it does not follow they are free in identical circumstances to make martyrs of their children before they have reached the age of full and legal discretion when they can make that choice for themselves. This decision gave the states the right to supersede parental authority and was later applied to medical decision-making cases as well. Furthermore, the Federal Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act (CAPTA), originally enacted in 1974 defined child abuse or neglect as any recent act or failure to act on the part of a parent or caretaker which results in death, serious physical or emotional harm, sexual abuse or exploitation, or an act or failure to act which presents an imminent risk of serious harm. Thus, current ethical and legal paradigm uses the neglect definition and threshold in evaluating the potential for physical harm. Furthermore, it establishes the right of the state to act as parents' patriae and intervene to prevent parental actions that would result in abuse or neglect. In summary, the current legal paradigm supports administering life-sustaining treatments, including blood transfusions to minors, if it will prevent serious harm. So what contextual factors affect the neonatologist's decision-making? First one is prognostic uncertainty. The decision to give any treatment in the face of parental refusal can be affected by the nature of the illness and the predicted outcome. For example, in our first case where the infant is in shock due to low hematocrit, the chance for survival with a good outcome is very high if transfused. However, in the second case, with CDH and severe HIE, the chance of survival with a good outcome using ECMO is much lower. Therefore, in the face of uncertain outcome, like the second case, the physicians may defer the decision to the parents. Although this approach may be controversial as a general rule of thumb, when there is significantly different opinion among physicians regarding an intervention, or the chance for survival is less than 50%, it may be appropriate to let the parents decide. Our second factor is urgency of the situation. Is this a situation where minutes or hours are important? Is this a situation where immediate action is required to save the life of the child? In situations like the first case, where immediate action to transfuse the child is essential, the physician should seek an immediate court order to authorize treatment. The ethical basis for this emergent approach is beneficence, saving the physical health, or specifically the life of the infant. In situations where the need to intervene is not emergent or the likelihood of the intervention to work is uncertain, both parents and physicians have time to deliberate and consider alternative treatments, and or involve other support systems, or simply wait if possible. Our third factor is the risk-benefit to the patient. Sometimes parents request certain religious rituals to be performed or artifacts to be placed on the baby or around the infant space in the NICU. In the NICU where family-centered care has become the model, these rituals may be an important part of the family support system. Therefore, the benefit is centered on the family's psychosocial well-being. The risk of honoring these requests is usually confined to the nature of the specific request and will vary depending on the situation. Although these requests usually have no direct negative or positive effect on the infant's care, each case should be approached individually with a risk and benefit analysis. For example, in our third case, where the family wanted the holy water to be put on the baby's forehead, the risk of infection was minimized by sterilizing the water to which the family agreed. What should the neonatologist do? What are the options? Based on the discussion about, we see that parents' authority over their children's medical decision-making is not absolute. Although parents have constitutional guarantees of freedom of religion, physicians are obligated to protect children from harmful religious practices or medical decisions that may result in harm or death. Therefore, it is recommended to approach each case individually and consider all the facts before deciding to honor or override the parent's decision. In general, legal action should be the last resort and is usually unnecessary in the vast majority of such cases. If time permits, alternative therapies should be sought. Usually in these situations, physicians obtain a written acknowledgement statement from the parent explicitly stating that the infant will be transfused if physicians determine that such interventions are necessary to save the infant's life. If it is a situation where there are no other alternatives and parents do not agree with the recommended life-saving intervention for their child, an emergency court judgment should be sought to determine whether intervention is indicated in order to prevent harm. The neonatologist should also be aware of their own value systems, beliefs, and biases. If they do not feel comfortable with or have conscientious objection to the treatment plan, they should consider transferring the care to another neonatologist or another institution. In the first case presented above where baby was in shock due to acute blood loss, the neonatologist recommended an emergent blood transfusion. This was based on the high probability of survival with a good outcome and a high risk of harm without the transfusion. The parents, on the other hand, refused transfusion based on their religious beliefs. Due to the emergent nature of the issue, The neonatologist sought an emergency court order to transfuse the infant to save his life. Social work, chaplaincy, hospital risk management, and ethics consultation services were also involved. Afterwards, hospital and medical leadership met with the parents to explain the reasoning and the urgency of the situation to the parents. The neonatologist again conveyed her true empathetic feelings and showed respect for the parents' religious beliefs. She also assured the parents that she or one of her colleagues would always be available to answer their questions and concerns. So how could the parents and physicians prepare for such situations? It is optimal for these parents to receive anticipatory prenatal counseling by proactively discussing the possibility of blood transfusion or any other religious preferences for their baby with the healthcare providers. Although such conversations may be distressing, it may be helpful for parents to have some prior understanding of the legal and medical community's approach to parental requests based on religious beliefs, including blood transfusions. Leaders of religious communities could be included in these discussions if the parents desire. The main goal of these meetings are to create a respectful relationship between all parties. Excellent communication skills and demonstrating genuine empathy are essential for these challenging situations. Knowing how to explore that particular parent's culture, ethnicity, religion, or any other personal character affecting their decision-making requires skillful communication. There are excellent published guidelines on this topic, one of them is the explanatory model where the physician tries to understand the parent's own point of view instead of categorizing them as Jehovah's Witness, Muslim, Hindu, Black, Hispanic, etc. In this model, the physician first explores whether parents have an ethnic identity and then if this ethnic or religious identity matters for their child's care. For example, he may start with, tell me if you have religious rituals that you would like to practice in the NICU. Then he would explore how he can help them by continuously negotiating between the principles of autonomy, parental authority, beneficence physician's duty to the patient, and the best interests of the infant. In any case, neonatologists should provide support, especially emotionally, both to the parents and the whole healthcare team. For example, in our fourth case, the mother refused to hold her dying infant. After meeting with the family, the neonatologist found out that the mother believed that her C-section wound would get infected if she held her dying infant. The mother's grief was palpable. The neonatologist expressed empathy by acknowledging mother's emotions and concerns. She assured her with medical knowledge that this would not be a risk. She also informed the bedside nurses, who also became very empathetic to mother's emotional distress after they heard about her cultural beliefs. Then the mother held her baby, and Ricardo died in his mother's arms. So how can we address the healthcare team's and parents' moral distress? Neonatologists, like other physicians, are trained to save lives. When faced with a parent who refuses a well-established, relatively safe, life-saving treatment for a newborn, they may feel anger and helplessness. At this point, when emotions run high on both sides, it will be helpful to remember to use empathy. A supportive dialogue and compassionate understanding from the physicians and other healthcare providers are important to establish trust. This will help to understand the parental perspective and build the essential therapeutic relationship. A therapeutic relationship is not only important to solve the problem at hand, but will also help the family and the physician to move forward. Social work, chaplaincy, hospital risk management, and ethics consultation services could also be invaluable in supporting physicians and other staff during these difficult times. In conclusion, working with parents whose religious or cultural beliefs are different than the medical team may present challenges. Current ethical and legal paradigms use the beneficence principle and harm standard for the intention of doing good, but also preventing harm and death as well. With this approach, It is intended to protect infant's future autonomy so that he may reach the age of majority and ultimately decide for himself. The practical aspects of the framework include, number one, assessing the urgency of the situation and the likelihood of favorable outcomes. Number two, exploring the reasoning behind the parent's decisions by using effective communication skills, for example, the explanatory model. Number three, negotiating for a common ground. And finally, exploring alternative therapies, if available, and utilizing resources, including social work, ethics consultation, and chaplaincy. Legal counsel should be the last resort if the conflict persists. Thank you for watching. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide.